Hey everybody, it's Daniel. Today we're going to bring you part two of our Best of Modern People Leader series. These were some of our favorite moments from the show so far. Next week, we'll be back to our normal cadence with our first recording from 2022, which we had with Katie Burke, the Chief People Officer at HubSpot. But until then, enjoy. To um, one of the first points of the great resignation and like so many opportunities for HR people right now, this is the perfect time for us to advocate for more people on our team. Yeah. It has been, we have been understaffed for years. And now it's like, hey, you want us to be a strategic player? Well, we need to actually be able to have people that are going to help us on the, the support and administrative side to really be able to do the strategic side. And then the other part is even at like a senior leader level, you HR can't be the facilitator. They have to participate. Yeah. You have to have somebody else that's going to facilitate so that you can have actual HR participation. Mm-hmm. Sorry, soapbox. Couldn't help it. Love it. <laughs> no, that that's a great point. It, you know, the the having you know your people um, leaders actively participating in the strategic conversations is I think something not as a note taker sorry (laughs) not and not not as yeah the note taker yeah for sure not as a note taker I think it's something that that a lot of companies miss but you know I I think that you know there is a lot of reflection that that we need to do and a lot we need to be advocates right for for more headcount you know whatever the needs are, you know, to, to, I guess, better position ourselves to have these strategic conversations. Um, because in my mind, like I, I, you know, more often than not in these conversations with other people leaders, like there is um, either there's a lot of hesitation to voice an opinion because of a fear of rocking the boat or, 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 or being a contrarian to what some of the other, you know, ELT members want, or, you know, for example, like there's the, you know, an emerging view that, you know, a office time should be a key part of, you know, the future of work strategy for a lot of businesses. And they're, you know, to be a contrarian, there's a lot of people that it's easy to jump on board with that, in my opinion, like, oh yeah, you know, we should change things up. We should go back to the office, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, but when we are seeing the data, the employee feedback data that shows that that's actually not what people want. Um, and we're in the midst of this, you know, this huge period of, of, of turbulence in the labor market, like that you're, it's almost like you're, you know, leaders are wanting things that are not, you know, possible. <laughs> Returning to the office and keeping all your, your talent. And so, I feel like, um, and I feel like we're being we're being put as people leaders in in impossible situations, and uh, and and so that I, I don't know. I, I'm not expecting a response from you all, but I do think that um, that now's the time to to for us to speak up on behalf of the function, right, and and advocate for um, moving into a more strategic way of operating. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be saucy here. What do we have to lose by doing it right now? What do we have to lose by speaking up? Because if they lose us, 
there's 10 other jobs that want us. <laughs> like, is that bad? Like, I need to take a sign right now. So might as well listen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am. I am running a startup and when I start getting LinkedIn requests for CHRO jobs, like I know like it's like, okay, <laughs> there is a dire need for, for HR leaders, but you're right. Like there, there's, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a shift in, um, in, in power or we're, we have more of a voice now or we have uh, a, a stronger foundation to, to, to have a voice is maybe the, what I'm trying to say. In the current in the current market, probably the most opportunity to have impact too on our employees' lives, right? Like there's so much is changing for them and um, and in the workplace and all of those things. And so the decisions that we help facilitate, whether we make them or not, you know, obviously we'll have influence from from the business and stuff. But it's it's going to be hugely impactful to the people that work for the company. And the changes that we make are going to be sweeping across multiple departments and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, it's a great opportunity in that way for our from our perspective. And, um, if you've been strategic before, if you're in a company that valued you before and you know how to do that, then um, yeah, you have a, it's kind of a, it's a fun time, I suppose, in that way too, but. Yeah, I, I agree. It is, it is fun. And I think that there, I feel like the number one thing that I learned coming up in HR was when you need to make a request, have the data to back it up, right? And there's just so much data now to back up. One, that HR needs to be a strategic function. Two, that we need to give flexibility if we want to retain people. And three, we need to be focused on retention. Um, and recruitment strategies too, right? Because if you need to keep hiring talent, you've got to be hiring in a different way than ever before. Yeah. So there is that, like when, when I have like friends or just like networking conversations around um, HR stuff, I'm always like, you have the data. You have the data to go to whoever you need to go to, the CEO, the CFO, whoever, and say, here's the data, you need to say yes. Um, and not just do what they're telling you to do, like step into those strategic shoes and say like, no, this makes no sense and here's why. Um, so I agree, like, what do we have to lose? There's more, more opportunity for the data to be public too, right? Like it's that much easier to get. Like we send out weekly operating reports with headcount and things like that. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's easier to display it and make it available, I think as well. So we're entering the, no, it's okay. I was just going to say we're entering the age of HR. You heard it here. Someone else is going to write an article and like and, and pay claim, but you heard it here, guys. We're entering the age of HR. It's our time. <laughs> <laughs>
And, you know, I could have easily bashed and I see a lot of people bashing traditional education and student loan debt and all this. And, you know, I saw one article recently, like, oh, you know, schools are not preparing people for the workforce. And I'm going, well, where's the, where's the, where are the schools getting their data on how to prepare people from you business? What are you telling them? Crickets. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not pointing a finger out, but I'm just trying to help people understand why are you anxious? Why are cases of anxiety, depression increasing? Because we have less certainty and we're human and we don't like that. We want to know things are predictable. I was teaching a class today and it was a, it was a sort of a fun moment for me to, to do this. I said, we're experiencing right now, and we've been experiencing before the pandemic, something called cognitive dissonance. And by that in the leadership world, and that we need to, to sort of reboot and redefine what leadership is. But we used to build as organizations for predictable, reliable, consistent results, right? That's what you're, that's what you're trained to like. That's what a board wants. We want to know you're going to deliver. It's got to be consistent and reliable. And that's why we forecast and plan and we scenario plan. Well, now I believe the, the, the muscle and the competitive advantage of a company is how well you deal with instability, how well you can respond and react and, and, not, and anticipate inconsistency. And so we've built for consistency. So what have we done to build for consistency? The longer you stay, the more valuable you are. We want, people, we want you in your job a long time. We want to know that you're, it's not going to be messed up. And then we look at Tesla, which is absolutely crushing the automobile industry. And those, they've got a median tenure of two years. And they're more valuable than Honda, Toyota, and Ford combined, and then some. So, and they didn't hire people from the auto industry. They're solving it differently in a different way. And so that's sort of the pandemic just was really, I couldn't have asked for a better assist, as I said. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it was an alley-oop. And I think just to, to, to add to that, I, the, the whole conversation right now around do we, do we embrace a, a digital first or hybrid approach or do we go back into the office? And I feel like that a lot of that is rooted in this old way of thinking in terms of like feeling like we need to go back into the office because it's what is known it's what we always have done and it's predictable. I can see butts and seats. And so I know mm -hmm. people are getting work done. Um, however, you know, all the data that we've collected over the last you know, 18 months says like, well, puts that to question. Like, is that really the best approach? And I, we, we don't need a, to launch into that, but you know, as I heard you, you know, walking through, you know, cognitive dissonance, it just like, that's just another example of, you know, wanting to, to approach things, you know, a traditional way that, you know, we've known, you know, in the past to, to work. Completely agree. And just to put a, you know, an underline for what you're saying, I think we all have to give each other grace in this moment of craziness right now. I don't blame companies for saying we got to get back because it's how they know. And there's a lot of money on the line and their jobs on the line and their investors are on the line. I know I can deliver when we're doing it that way. And, you know, if you're in the financial services, someone on a podcast recently tried to bait me by showing a video of Jamie Dimon going, if you're not in the office, you're not hustling, get back here. And they're like, what do you think of that? And I go, that's someone who is very certain he knows how to deliver value that way. And he's managing billions of dollars. And he's also worried that network security is not going to, you know, convince him that everyone dialing in from their home is going to protect their data from the Russians and the Chinese hackers. Like, hey, so I get it. I get it. But shame on us if we don't take advantage of this moment in time to try some new stuff. And, and I did a, a little bit of a provocative post a couple of days ago. I said, everyone to me complains right now, can't recruit, just can't recruit, can't find people. Everyone's got a new psychology work. 
And I'm trying to say, people, it's not that you can't recruit. It's that you're stuck believing that you need an employee in the old world model to get something done. Maybe you can do it with some people from Upwork or a, a contract, you know, with a bunch of gig workers. Like how, if that's your model, yeah, you're going to have trouble because everyone's in this moment of recalibration right now. You know, we got people going to Costa Rica, dialing in with their fatigues on, and, you know, it's like a different world. So, you know, let's embrace and who says we can't build something better this way. We don't know, but because we're human, we revert in crisis to what we know. And that I get it. I get it, but we should at least experiment, right? Like let's try some things and see how it goes. And that's what I try to do in my book is show examples of like college basketball, right? Thank you for saying alley-oop. Like I lived the first 10 years of my career saying, don't let people know that you're into sports because it's really male dominant kind of stuff. Like, Hey, no, I'm talking about sports now and college basketball. Look what they've yeah. gone through four years of having an athlete. Now it's just six months, your best athlete. And they have to reinvent themselves as a new team every year. And they're doing it. It's not what they want probably. And it's it compared to the way it was, but it's the way it is. Right. Yeah. And I, I feel like this all goes back to, loyalty versus employability. And I just love the the Duke Coach K Zion Williamson reference in how Coach K completely shifted how he was going to recruit players and how he was going to develop them. He went from saying, I'm going to recruit guys that are going to come in for four years and we're going to build a program around these guys and they're going to be here for the long haul to saying, yep. that's not going to work. If we want the best players and we want to win, we needed to tell them you're coming here for a year and you're going to get more out of our program than you're going to get anywhere else. And we're going to set you up to go to the NBA and have a great career. And I had never really thought about the traditional job that way, but I think it could be. And I think you, you referenced, or you were talking about, I can't remember his name. It was a gentleman that worked at uh, LinkedIn, I think maybe Goman. Um, and how the first thing that he would ask new hires is, Oh, where oh, do you want to work? Gamson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gamson. Gamson. Sorry, yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. butchered yeah. that name. That's you, fine. Uh, yeah, he, he won't listen. <laughs> <laughs> he would ask them, you know, where do you want to work after LinkedIn? And I imagine people probably were caught really off guard. I would be caught off guard if somebody asked me that. But it makes total sense if you're starting your relationship with your manager on the basis of honesty and trust, and you're collaborating on your career that's only going to benefit the both of you. It's going to benefit you and your professional development, but it's also going to be benefit the company because, you know, obviously you're going to be more engaged. You're probably going to learn more. Um, so yeah, I, I just loved how you made the comparison between college basketball and the workforce today. Yeah. And I think what, uh, and thank you for, for recognizing that. And I think what's behind that is an honest conversation that I really think is, and here's the logic trail. So when I speak to executives around the world, what's your biggest problem? Can't hire people and they're not staying. Okay. The next question is, do you think that's going to change? Do you think we're in a moment in time where in two or three years, people are going to stay longer? They say, absolutely not. I said, so, okay. So you believe the trend of talent is to stay shorter. Okay. So why is every one of your benefits based on people staying a long time? Well, you know, maybe you can repurpose that and expect people to leave and build something like college basketball has and start the conversation with, we know you're, this isn't your destination. We're part of your journey. We want it to be the best part of your journey and we're going to make you better. And that's why, that's why I really believe that the best thing you can do for your employees is make them more capable of doing something greater tomorrow. 
And isn't that better than promising job security, promising career security, right? And what Coach K does, I, I think, and, and by the way, college basketball coaches in many states in America are the highest paid state employees. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they are. the Kentucky basketball coach, you know, more than any state employee. So it's a big business. But isn't that a more meaningful thing where Coach K is saying, listen, I'm going to set you up for the next phase better than anyone else. And guess what? If it doesn't work, because the odds are against you getting a job in the NBA, I'll hook you up as an announcer, as a scout, as an assistant coach. I've got your back. I care about you, not just when you work for me. I call that the Tony Soprano School of HR. What? You quit? You're dead to me. It started uh, a few years ago before before the pandemic, actually, Daniel. So um, I was really influenced by the famous Laszlo Bock uh, book on work rules, where he talks about upward management feedback, um, where, where this concept of going and asking the employees what they think of their managers. So I thought, hey, this would be really cool to do, um, really interesting. Um, where do I get hold of the data? And then I realized, actually, we have that data already. We ask questions on that every year in our um, engagement survey. So then it was a question of um, looking at how we could get hold of that data and analyze it and do a deep dive on it to understand it better. So we've been doing that for a few years, but this year is the first year that we've done it all across Liberty Latin America. So um, you know, across our 12,000 employees, we, we, we really looked at exactly um, what it was that made the best managers so effective in, in leading their people through the change. Um, we have five questions in the engagement survey relating to the employee and their relationship with their, with their manager. Um, so we effectively gave every people manager an average score across those five questions, and then we ranked them. So uh, all Liberty Latin American managers were, were ranked based on that average. Then we looked at the demographics, uh, particularly around the top 10% of, of managers. So yeah, that, that's a kind of outline, Daniel, of, of what we did. That is really cool. I'm curious, were there any interesting findings that came out of this research? Lots of interesting findings. And, and um, there may be some specific things relating to the relating to the pandemic as well. We, we didn't find a big difference between male and female managers, which was slightly different to previous research. Um, we did find that female managers were far better at giving feedback than, than male managers, which was, which was interesting. And then, and then the second sort of really fascinating point was that um, our managers with lower tenure, the managers that were newer to the organization, actually had better scores from their employees on their, on their management style as well. Uh, and, and again, that was different to what we'd found in, in previous surveys. Um, so uh, I don't, don't really understand why that is. Uh, our hypothesis would be that um, just the demands of, of what employees need from their managers during the pandemic has completely shifted and, and maybe more experienced managers are, are less aware of that or less able to adapt possibly. Um, but we need to dig into that a bit further. Yeah, that was my, my as I was just listening to you talk, Dom, that's what I was thinking. It's like, okay, if I have a relationship with an existing manager that had norms and had, you know, we had a way of, of interacting and, and working together and that gets disrupted <laughs> and you can now see like how I operate as your manager 
you know, flailing about in this kind of Zoom remote working way, you know, I, I could see how that would have a negative impact on scores. Whereas if we just started working together and we only knew each other through these Zoom interactions, um, I could see how that would have a, uh, a different impact on scores. So that's really, really interesting. So you mentioned the five questions that you were using to in the employee engagement survey about managers. Um, you may have said this, I might've missed it, but what, what were some of those questions? Uh, the first one was around understanding the personal situation. So the manager being supportive of their employee. Second one was on recognizing efforts and results. The third one was empowerment and, and motivation. The fourth one was around psychological safety. So feeling comfortable to speak up and disagree with the manager if the employee had a different point of view. And then the, the fifth and final one was um, they regularly get the manager, does the manager regularly give the employee feedback through our performance development, agile performance development system. So yeah, five sort of rounded questions, I think. Excellent. Well, so you, you get your, your data set, you, you have the ranking in place. What do you do with your data? What did y'all do with the data once you had the ranking of, of all the managers? Well, the first thing we did was that the top 10% of managers were sent an email to say, hey, well done. You're doing something right here. Your employees think that you're, think that you're fantastic. And um, uh, the, the, the top 10% of managers you know, were, were obviously thrilled to bits to get that kind of communication and, and recognition. Then, then we got that 10, top 10% and we interviewed some of them. So did some deep dive interviews with them, trying to understand some of their habits and techniques. And then we did a second survey of the employees of the top 10% of managers. Um, and yeah, we, we've, we've found some, some really interesting habits uh, that we think um, differentiate the, the top 10% of people managers from, from everyone else. I'm curious, like, you know, building out the people function at four different venture back companies, were there any big lessons learned? Like, is there like one or two things that come to mind immediately? Mm. Well, I'll, I'll say this. So my, I have worked with wonderful teams, wonderful people teams in, in all my companies. So, you know, and I'm still in touch with many of them. But one of the unique things about Envision being fully remote um, was I just saw this power in, in having access to talent all over the place. Um, because prior to Envision, I was competing for talent in the Bay Area mostly, um, and it's a highly competitive market. So it was really kind of this new exciting thing for me that as a hiring manager, uh, I was I limited my search to the United States, but I hired people in Phoenix and Seattle and Boston and New Orleans and Atlanta and was accessing this great talent that I never knew existed um, that also brought, you know, just really diverse perspectives and, you know, backgrounds working at different companies that weren't, you know, so Bay Area focused. It, it seems so obvious now, but yeah, like I'm even somebody that definitely benefits from companies expanding their talent pool to not just their location, but 
maybe across the entire U.S. or expanding into different countries. Um, but, you know, coming into Envision, where this was the first time that you were trying to build out a best-in-class culture remotely, did you have any doubts that it was even possible? Goodness. That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah. Um, you know, I think that there was this big unknown question of like, does this even work? Like, can you yeah. build a successful company in this way? Um, and, you know, recently we had this big success of GitLab going public and having their IPO um, and then being kind of the first of many, hopefully many more to come of companies being wildly successful, you know, having been fully remote from, from day one. Um, and, you know, Envision has gone on to be successful and there's many others, there's Zapier and Buffer and, you know, many other companies now that are, are doing fabulously working, working this way. Um, but yeah, we had doubts because we didn't know what it took. <laughs> Y'all were sort of the pioneers. Yeah, I mean, out. when I first joined Envision or, you know, during pre-pandemic, there were maybe five or six companies operating this way at scale. And I knew the CEOs and heads of people at all of them. You know, we were all talking and all collaborating and, and sharing best practices, you know, to, to try to make it work. I love it. Are there any themes or, um, I guess foundational things that need to exist for a company to succeed at the task of, you know, moving from either, you know, a, an office centric or a hybrid model to a remote first model. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, it was a really small number of companies that were operating this way pre-pandemic. And then, you know, every company in the world was forced to become a remote company overnight. Um, and what I've seen is that, you know, most of those companies didn't choose to work that way. Um, and they've survived, you know, for the last 18 months or so working this way. Um, but maybe they didn't have any intention to, or don't felt forced into it. So, um, I've also seen, you know, lots of companies announce that they are going to be giving it a go and, and want to become remote companies long-term but haven't really taken the steps, these foundational steps, like you mentioned, to fully transition their organization. Um, so like I mentioned with the clients that I take on, I really want to know that they're, they're serious about the transition and they're, they're treating it like any other large organizational shift um, where it's getting you know, buy-in and alignment from the executive team, that there are cycles of time and, you know, big company OKRs related to um, this transition. And so for me, where I always start with my clients is on that foundation first with the executive team. And you can kind of think of it as a, as a triangle, almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs where love it. <laughs> it starts with redefining the company culture. Mm -hmm. And, and how that shows up kind of the next level up on that triangle, um, are the company norms. So kind of the behaviors of the leaders and the employees and in how their culture shows up every day. 
And then building from there, we likely need to redefine how goal setting is done at the company. Um, kind of what are the goals and where are they and how do people know what they are both at the company level and the individual level? And then in turn, how do managers hold people accountable to, to those goals when you know, they aren't seeing their teams every day? And then finally, kind of that last foundational step is aligning on the tools the company will use to enable these behaviors. So like I mentioned with goals, kind of are you using some form of system um, to track goals and provide feedback and status updates? How are you doing project management? How are you doing one-on-ones? Um, kind of aligning on that core tool set, because um, often what I see is different departments are all using different tools or there is an alignment on what is our kind of one's uh, source of truth for different company information. Historical data does us no good right now. We can't use a map for Earth to chart a path on Mars. And that is essentially what we're up against. Everything going forward is nothing like it was. And any attempt to link the two will essentially be futile. That would be time wasted in, in my estimation. So what do we do going forward? It's this very interesting combination of taking the biggest leap of faith you've ever taken, paired with the smallest possible iterative steps once you've made the leap. You have to have this clean break of thought that what the future will be like is nothing like the past, and that's okay. Instead of looking at the future as taking something from what used to be, look at it as an opportunity to build something COVID has given every leader a permission slip to try new things, largely without justification. That is an incredible opportunity. It may be a once in a career opportunity to reinvent the way your team looks and the way your team works. Don't let it go to waste, take advantage of it. And then once you've committed to it, a lot of organizations who did this well in the pandemic, they said, look, we're moving to remote first, digital first. We don't know what that means but we're committed to seeing it through. That gave people a peace of mind that they didn't have to worry about return to office dates being continually kicked down the road every three to six months. And it's impossible to plan and think about schools and where you want to live. There was an executive commitment from the jump that said, we're going to make this leap. But here's the thing, we have no idea what it's going to look like. So we need your help as team members to iterate with us. We're going to experiment with reducing recurring meetings by 30% every quarter and see if we're good at async. It's a two-way door. If we don't like what we see, we walk back through the door and we've, we've learned something. So it's really a two-part series. You have to commit to the future being different. And then you have to invite people that are interested and passionate about it to iteratively make these small steps and figuring out what that new future looks like for you. And what are your predictions on those that are unable to, to, to find the courage to make that leap over I time? The, I think the market will force them to. I think in the, in the years ahead, hybrid will be well-tried because on paper, hybrid seems like the best of both worlds. It provides ultimate flexibility. But what's really happening is uh, my friend, 
Paul McKinley at Vista is called, calls it shybrid, which is you're really being shy and you're using hybrid as an excuse to commit to anything, right? So what's going to happen is if you allow people to work from the office or from home, but then don't change anything behaviorally or operationally, you're inviting a tier A and a tier B system where people have different access to information, different praise and promotion. It's just breeding chaos and dysfunction. You have to be intentional and create systems where people have equal access to information, even if they are in different places. This is what I mean by remote first. Your company has to be able to operate no matter where an individual sits on any given day. And if they choose to sit in an office, then they just go there and work remotely. Maybe that's their preferred place, but they don't go there and work fundamentally differently. So it really starts with auditing all of your values and all of your workflows and asking yourself, hey, does this hold up if someone is working on an airplane, if they're working in a hotel room, if they're working in their spare bedroom? A head of remote might be really useful to hire to answer those questions and to build a team around it because it's a significant amount of change. It won't happen overnight. And you're going to need a consistent drumbeat to get people to iterate with you until you've reached the other side of this journey. Thanks for, for tuning in to another episode of The Modern People Leader. We, we really, really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating. It would mean the world to us. And connect with us on LinkedIn. We want to we wanna know what you think about the show. And uh, yeah, you can, you can find links to both of our profiles in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and, and see you on the next episode.